and you don't get distracted by other stuff. Not that you will, but I, I know I do on my phone. So if you want a paper Bible, grab one of those over there. And you'll also need your booklet. And if you turn to page three, you'll find my comprehensive outline, <laughs> um, which is where we're going to be going this morning. We will have a reading, don't worry. I know we haven't read any of the actual Bible yet. We'll get to that um, as we go through our session this morning. Let me see if I can jack this up. To... There we go. It's great coming back. To... I, haven't... I came to this hotel for a, a church weekend 10 years ago, and nothing's changed. The food is still unbelievably good. Um, the best bit, the best change they've made is they used to have all these chairs were, were spinny, like swivel, move around chairs, which was an absolute nightmare when you were speaking because people were just kind of drifting around. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. So I'm glad that we haven't got that anymore. Um, okay, this weekend we are, we are looking at a book of the Bible that is going to feel perhaps um, a bit different. It's a book that John Calvin never preached from. Uh, Martin Luther, if you know who I'm talking about, not only ignored it, but spoke against it vigorously, writing, I am so hostile to this book that I wish it didn't exist at all, for it is full of heathen perverseness. Um, The main characters are decidedly dodgy. It is a book, as one author puts it, that is less veggie tales, more Game of Thrones, with a lot more sex, murder, and impaling than the usual version of the story would imply. And to top it all off, it is a book that is famous for having no mention of God in it at all. Um, The only book like it in the Bible in that respect is the Song of Songs. And yet, despite that, I couldn't be any more excited, as I hope you're picking up, to spend this weekend in the book of Esther with you. Uh, This is not a small book. It's 10 chapters long. We are, for some reason, going to try and blast through it in three sessions. Um, But if ever there was such a thing as a binge-worthy book of the Bible, this is it. Uh, We're going to go fairly slowly this morning, just in the first couple of chapters. Tonight, we're going to try and cover six chapters of Esther. Um, in what is at times almost unbelievable narrative. So come ready for that later on after dinner. And hidden in this book are some wonderful things to discover and be reminded of, particularly around the providence of God as well as the reversal of destiny for God's people when all hope seems lost. And so my prayer for us, and we'll pray in a moment, my prayer is that this book, for all of its kind of wild ride narrative, might actually bring each of us great comfort as we begin a new year with all of the turbulence of what's going on in the world outside and maybe with all of the chaos that may well be going on in our own lives right about now as we pause to consider the God who rules sovereignly over all things, even the very micro details of our lives for our ultimate goods and for his glory. Okay, so let's pray We need God's help as we come to his living word. Let's ask for that now as we come to it. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that all of Scripture is breathed out by you and it's useful for us. And so we pray this morning as we just begin this deep dive into Esther that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your words. And that namely our hearts would be lifted and directed to Christ, the one to whom your word points. We ask please that we would go away from here. However we feel as we're sat here now, we might go away from here a bit later on. Just with hearts that are full of joy. In the one who rules sovereignly over all things. 
and the one who rules and reigns forever. So Father, please work that in us, we pray by your spirit as we consider this your words. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now, um, before we dive into it, let's just get our bearings. Uh, first thing to get straight, how on earth are we meant to read Esther? Esther, Old Testament book. We've got to, get, we've got to hold on to our doctrine of Scripture. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, as I just mentioned in the prayer, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So this right here in Esther is just as much God's Word to us as is John's Gospel or one of Paul's letters or the Psalms, which may seem surprising when we get to it in a moment. And so how do we want to approach this? Well, let's remember the, the questions that we're asking as we read the Old Testament. Firstly, we want to be asking, how is this read by the original hearers? Um, by God's people, the Israelites, to whom this was initially written. We're going to see that the book of Esther uses the term Jew a lot, um, but not in a kind of ethnic group sense. When the, the writer talks about the Jews, they're referring to the old covenant people of God. Uh, and so for the Jewish people throughout history... This has been a particularly precious and poignant story. But it's not just a book for the Jews, because this is part of the canon of Scripture. And as you'll no doubt have heard time and again from those who preach regularly on a Sunday globe, that all Scripture signposts in one direction, namely to Christ. And so we're asking, secondly, as we read through this all the time, we're thinking, okay, but how does this point us to Jesus? Luke 24, John 5, John reminds us regularly of how all the Old Testament, including Esther, is about him and his anticipated arrival. So we need to have our antennas up to be considering how this helps direct our gaze to Jesus. And because it directs us to Jesus, it's therefore entirely relevant for us today, sitting at some Devere Hotel in 2023, because through faith in Jesus, we are grafted into the people of God. And so as we read Esther, through the lens of the New Testament, we can stop to consider, well, what does this mean for us today? As the new covenant people of God, what warnings might there be for us here? What encouragements? And so because of Jesus, the one to whom this points, this story of God's providential salvation for his people is our story too. That's how we read it. Now, one more thing to do before we dive in, and that is to set the scene for where we are in redemptive history at this point. Okay? Let's just kind of rattle through the timeline. 539 BC, you've got Cyrus. Um, he's of Persia. He defeats the Babylonian king. He takes over the Babylonian empire. It's what we read about in Daniel 5, if you know the book of Daniel. And the Persians at this point are now in charge. They're ruling the roost, 539 BC. 538 BC, Cyrus, he says that the Jews are allowed to go back to their land from being in exile. It's written on Cyrus's cylinder. You can go and see it in the British Museum. 537 BC, next year, the first group of exiles go back to Jerusalem. About 50,000 people, read about it in Ezra 2, led by this guy, Zerubbabel. Here's the key. Some of the Jews don't go back to Jerusalem. And the book of Esther is about the Jews who don't go back to the land, don't go back to Jerusalem, but rather who stay in Persia, under Persian rule, and as such were embroiled and were caught up in Persian culture and way of life. And consequently, God is in many ways, for the Jews remaining in Persia, hidden in their lives. Which means it's not surprising that we don't read about God in this book. It's reflective of a people who've largely hidden him away as they just dived headfirst into Persian way of living. More on that as we go. 
And the events of, uh, of this book then take place between 483 BC and 473 BC in Susa, which was um, kind of modern-day Iran. And at this point, the Jews who have stayed have been in Persia for about 50 years, right? Cyrus, Darius, they've long gone. And Xerxes, he's the main guy on the throne. Okay, Xerxes, ruling over the Persian Empire, he's the big Jesus. We'll come into contact with him in a moment. Okay, that's all by way of backdrop. Let's get into it. Tonight, we're looking at the introduction. We'll come to the main body this evening. Um, here's how this is going to work with the readings. Nick and Jenny are going to be reading for us. Uh, we're going to hear a chunk read. Then I'm going to make some comments. We'll do that a few times, and then I'll land with a couple of implications for us toward the end of our time this morning. Okay, so turn to Esther chapter 1 in your Bibles. Esther chapter 1. And we're going to start just with verse 1 through 9. Thanks, Nick. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes to rule over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from least to greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Okay, so Xerxes, we're told, verse 1, rules over 127 provinces. That's um, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and northern Sudan. Okay, it's the entire known world at the time. Basically, there is no escaping Xerxes' grasp. And um, in verse 2 and 3, look down there, you've got these nobles and these authorities who meet in the citadel of Susa, which is a bit like the kind of powerhouse in the city. It's like the modern-day Kremlin in Moscow. And... Verse 4, Xerxes, he throws this six-month open house to show off how great he is. Now, why is he doing this? Um, well, we know from history that he's about to try and go to war with the Greeks. Uh, and so this is kind of functioning as his rallying campaign. He's showing off all of his stuff so that all these people from the other provinces might come in and think, well, we can have some of this if we partner with Xerxes against the Greeks. And the whole thing finishes off then with this week-long party in verse 5 through 8 which is just this picture, as you heard it read, of total opulence. Um, it's wild. The wine is in full flow. Everyone's steaming drunk. There are sofas, verse 6, made of solid gold. I mean, you don't get those in the January DFS sale. Uh, 
the, the wine is being served in bespoke gold goblets. It's just a picture. The whole point of it is mind-blowing extravagance. And at this point in the story, right at the start, Xerxes looks super powerful because he rules all the known world. He's got all the rulers and the elite just eating out of the palm of his hand. He's got solid gold furniture. And no wonder people attempted to think of him as divine, which they did. But he is perhaps not quite so almighty as he would seem. Have a look down at verse 10. Thanks, Jenny. We're going to do verse 10 through 22. So verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirit from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Betha, Harbona, Bigtha, Habagatha, Zetha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the laws and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsina, and Memican, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs had taken to her. Then Memican replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him. But she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each providence in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Okay, so verse 10, uh, look there. After seven days of partying, right, final day, um, Xerxes has been drinking nonstop, and he commands Vashti, his queen, to be brought before him. Now, um, Xerxes would have had loads of women in his life, but this is the queen. This is his trophy wife. Uh, and it's another power play from Xerxes. He's shown off his wealth and his wine, and now he's shown off his woman. Uh, this is him exploiting Vashti like an ornament. Now, the text is quiet on this, but the, the language of it suggests that this isn't just kind of Vashti rocking up in a nice dress for the cameras. This is sexual exploitation of Vashti in front of everybody. Uh, in fact, it may well have been a command to turn up in front of all these drunk, leering men wearing only her royal crown. And yet, at this point, at the height of Xerxes' power and authority and invincibility, remember, he's got 
all of these principalities coming before him, just eating out of his hand, Vashti says no. Verse 12, can you see there, she's not having any of it. She's not going to be exploited like this. And it makes Xerxes mad, which is really kind of no great surprise. He's trying to rally support for this huge war effort, but his wife won't even listen to him. And then it kind of gets comical, because verse 13, if you saw, he consults with his lawyers to work out what can be done about it, because even if you're the queen, you don't disobey the word of Xerxes. But then one of the nobles, this guy Memucan, in verse 17, he seems to wildly overreact to what's gone on, saying that the queen's conduct will become known to all women, and there will be no end of disrespect and discord. So this guy, Memican is worried that Vashti's actions is going to kick off some kind of women's liberation movement across the entire Persian Empire. And it feels like, as you read it, it feels like major overreach that, that Vashti's actions are going to lead to women all over the known world not listening to their husbands. And so the supposed wisdom from these nobles is to issue this royal decree that Vashti is banished from the king's presence and that her position of queen is up for grabs. With the purpose being, did you see, end at verse 20, that women across the realm respect their husbands. And so it's what happens. And every household across the entire empire, from the little village in northern India to the nomads in the desert in Ethiopia, all get a letter from the king telling them that the husband's in charge. And if there's any doubt about that, look at Vashti and let her be an example. And we just get to the end of chapter 1, or toward the end of chapter 1, and we're thinking, all right, is Xerxes really in control as he thinks he is? And we're also left with Persia not having a queen, which is going to prove a really crucial detail, as we're going to see. Now, chapter 1 ends, and there's a gap here of about three to four years in the timeline. And in that intervening period, um, history tells us that this is when Xerxes went to war against Greece. So that war that he's been rallying for, start of chapter 1, this is when he goes to war, and he's had his rallying campaign. He goes off to fight. Um, this is the war that included the famous battle against the Spartans. If you've seen the film 300, uh, and in that infamous battle that really happened in history with Gerald Butler and a thousand other six-packs, um, they, they slowed the Persian advance right down so that the Greeks could assemble their army and ultimately win the war. So... That means that it hasn't gone well for Xerxes. And end of chapter 1, he returns home to Susa, tail between his legs, and he's feeling, one could only imagine, pretty miserable about life. Which is where we arrive at in chapter 2. Chapter 2, 1 through 4. Thanks, Nick. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided... He remembered what remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Okay, so Xerxes arrives home, he's defeated, um, and he decides to make himself feel better with the other thing that he likes, which is lots of sex. And uh, the king's PA in verse 2 suggests undoubtedly the worst dating show in the history of the world. It makes the trash on Netflix look tame. Um, it's a competition where verse 3 
all of the beautiful virgins from across the provinces are brought into the king's harem and they're made ready for a night with the king. And this isn't glamorous. It's not an audition. It is abduction and it's awful. The king's harem where these um, girls are to be brought is essentially the housing quarters for concubines who were young women available for the king's sexual pleasure whenever he fancied. And we're going to see a bit more about what that competition involved in a moment. But um, before that, we are finally introduced to our two main characters, our two other main characters from verse 5 through verse 11. The camera just pans across to these guys just for a moment. Jenny, we're going to read verse 5 through 11. Thanks. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther, who had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won, won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Okay, so first up, verse 5. Look there, we meet Mordecai. Um, and we're told some pretty interesting detail about his family history. The writer says that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's of Kish. Now, don't just skirt over that. That's going to be really important um, later on, because King Saul, Israel's first ever king, if you know that in the history, was the son of a man named Kish. Um, so it would seem that Mordecai is actually in the line of one of the kings of Israel. That's an important detail. Just tuck that away for this evening. And Mordecai's got a cousin Verse 7, who's assen he's essentially adopted as his own daughter, called Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, or Esther, which is her Persian name. And this is a girl who has had a troubled background, a traumatic background. She's an orphan. She's a refugee. She's also stunningly beautiful, verse 7. And as a result, verse 8, Esther is one of those who is brought into the harem. Now, we don't know whether she goes willingly or whether she's dragged, kicking and screaming out the front door. The author doesn't comment. But regardless, she's there, and she starts just winning favor in people's eyes. Verse 9, verse 15, as we'll come to in a moment. And as such, she gets in on the, the top-of-the-range beauty treatments and special food. She gets her own retinue of servants. She has the top spot in the harem. But despite that, verse 10, we just get the sense that it's not all sweet smell and roses. This is a dangerous place to be openly part of God's people. You see that Mordecai forbids her to reveal her nationality as a Jew. Now we're thinking, why, why say that? Is he being shrewd? Is he being ashamed? Well, again, we're not told. As is so often the case in this book, the author just leaves us to feel the tension and to wonder. 
And then we're given the details of what this competition is going to involve and who the final winner is. Have a look down at verse 12 through 18. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil of myrrh and six of perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she was to go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Okay, so verse 12. Uh, the girls involved in this awful competition have a year-long makeover. Year-long. Um, I mean, this is next level. It's 12 months of spa treatment for one night with the king. Uh, and it's awful, isn't it? Like, we're allowed to just pause here and think this is awful. Uh, these are young women losing their virginity to this tyrant. And it's bad enough, but this is the end of the road for these girls as a result of this. Okay, they can't just walk out afterwards and try and build a life elsewhere. By law, anyone who slept with the king could never be with another man ever again. They were essentially living widows unless the king decided to make them a more regular concubine or one of his wives. Now, um, just by way of aside, the author doesn't comment on the ethics of what is happening here, but it should go without saying that what Xerxes does here is wicked and it's abhorrent. We know from the rest of the Bible account that this is in direct disobedience to everything God says in his word about what it looks like to treat men and women as those made by God in his image with the dignity and with the respect that they deserve. And unless Xerxes repented of his evil, then he will have to face the wrath of the Almighty God for his sin. And there will be justice done on the day when Jesus returns in glory. Please do not read the lack of moral comment in this book as approval of what is being done. Really important. Because God's word is not silent on these things. The judge of all the earth shall do right. This is sexual exploitation on a whole other level. And Esther is caught right up in it. Verse 15, 16. She is made ready. And then in this surprise twist... She gives Xerxes the best night of his life. And incredibly, verse 17, she wins this worldwide competition. I just want to pause again here, because maybe you're approaching it, maybe you've never read Esther before, and you're coming at this, and you're thinking, does anybody have a moral compass in this book? Um, there just seems to be this kind of moral ambiguity. The author doesn't really ever say 
what's right or wrong. I mean, why doesn't Esther run away? Why, we might be thinking, does she clearly provide such a great evening for Xerxes? Is she enjoying the experience? And I mean, where is Mordecai's Liam Neeson moment? Right? This is his adopted daughter. Why doesn't he use his particular set of skills to try and get her back rather than just skulk around outside the palace? But the author's silent, and, and yet at this point it's really important to emphasize that the purpose of the book is not to show us how to behave in morally dubious situations. The point of this book is not be more Esther. There are things that we're going to see, particularly end of tonight and into tomorrow, about Esther that we want to commend. But the point of the book is not to go away and say, yeah, I want to be like Esther. No, it shows us how God acts in spite of all this moral mess. The point, as we're going to see, is that God works behind the mess and the sin of life to accomplish his divine purposes for the fulfillment of his promises for his people. Okay, back to the story, because... All of a sudden, verse 17, 18, the story has taken this quite remarkable shift because without even realizing it, Xerxes has just made a Jewish woman the queen of his entire empire. Now, we're not going to realize how significant that is until tonight, but um, bear it in mind. And there's just one more crucial plot point that we don't want to miss this morning either. Because all of a sudden, end of chapter 2, there is a sudden scene change away from the royal celebrations of the new queen being crowned to Mordecai. And we just get this camera shot of Mordecai sitting quietly around the king's gate and he, he overhears a conversation. Final reading. Thanks, Jenny. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do so. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. All right. Um, this would be so easy to miss this bit, but I cannot tell you how crucial a plot point this is. So lock it in as we approach this evening. See what's going on here. Verse 21. Um, king Xerxes' security detail, they planned this assassination attempt. Verse 22. Mordecai happens to hear about it as he sat by the gate. And he manages to sneak this message to Esther, who tells the king, who credits Mordecai, and it's recorded. Now, two reasons why this is important. Verse 23. Number one, the guilty officials are impaled on poles. Now, um, don't look at this if you're squeamish. Persia was known for this unique kind of public execution. Uh, it wasn't a quick death. It was horrific. It was full of shame. Um, and it basically functioned as an example. If you cross the king, this is what happens to you. It's a power play. And this death by impaling, this is going to come up quite a bit as we go through this evening, so keep an eye out for that. Second thing, the king has all of this written down in what is essentially his journal. 
Now, um, Mordecai's discovery and his reporting to the king, it's been recorded. You can see that in verse 23. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. And this is going to sit and it's going to gather dust on the shelves in the palaces for a while. But trust me, that is a time bomb that is going to explode later this evening. Don't forget that crucial bit of information. Now, I've said that to you a hundred times already. Don't forget that bit of information. Um, but it's true because this story is so full of Easter egg clues. You know, if you're into Marvel, the kind of thing I mean, um, some blank looks. Uh, they're all important for tonight. Right? So you've got to lock these away. That's chapters one through two of Esther. So really, as we just kind of look at these first two chapters this morning, we're, we're really just teeing up the story for what's going to come further down the track. But at this point on face value, Despite the scene with Vashti, we are left feeling, at the end of chapter 2, like Xerxes is unbelievably strong and powerful, and like God's people are so weak. He has got all the power, he's got all the money, he's got all the sex, he just clicks his fingers and stuff seems to happen. And God's people are just pawns in Xerxes' little game. Although hang on, because as we pause at this point of the story, there is now a Jewish queen on the throne of the ruling world empire, one of God's own people. And not only that, an old Jewish guy has just become the savior of that king and it's been scribbled down in his biography. And so something is going on behind the scenes. Someone is pulling the strings. And as we just prepare to come into land this morning, I think that's where chapters 1 and 2 of Esther just begin to direct us. Firstly, it's this. It's, it's by encouraging us to rest in the providence of God. I wonder whether we all too often fall into the trap of thinking that our lives just sort of happen by a series of chance and coincidences. Um, that's the secular philosophy, right? We can, we can easily slip into that way of thinking. And we use phrases like fingers crossed or um, touch wood or that was a bit of good luck or that was such a coincidence. But these opening chapters in Esther, especially when we, get, when we step back and, and when we see them from the perspective of the whole book, teach us that there is no such thing as chance or coincidence or luck. Rather, all things happen as a result of God's providence. Here's the definition of God's providence from the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay, I find it really helpful. It says, it says this, The providence of God is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that, and here's the key, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hands. And this is such a major thing to see in Esther. Because there are a whole load of moments in this book that look like huge coincidences. But when we see the book as a whole, we're going to realize that the events in chapters 1 and 2 that we've seen this morning are crucial for the way the rest of the story pans out. And so when Vashti refuses to come into court, that is not chance, that is God's providence. When Esther wins favor with Haggai in the harem, that's not a lucky break, that is God's providence. When Esther wows Xerxes after one night in his bed and becomes queen of Persia, that is not good fortune, that is God's providence. When Mordecai just so happens to be in the right place at the right time to overhear the assassination plot against the king, that's not a coincidence, it's God's providence. The author Karen Jobes, writing on this, she, she puts it like this. She says, Beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, 
As we read Esther, we see an unseen and uncontrollable power at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. And this is, in many ways, one of the big teaching points of Esther. That even when it appears that God is absent, he is still providentially working in all things. Even when it appears that God is absent, he is still working providentially in all things. I wonder whether sometimes we think that God only really works in the big stuff, like um, miracles and dreams and burning bushes. Esther reminds us that God is providentially at work at all times in everything. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, when you see one of the ten plagues, you know that's God. But when King Xerxes gets drunk and starts bragging, you don't say, wow, that's God at work. But the book of Esther is trying to tell you, don't make that mistake. God is at work. Now, important aside, that doesn't mean that God orchestrates evil. Please hear me say this. This does not mean that God orchestrates evil. It does not mean that God comes up with Xerxes' awful competition. No, not at all, otherwise he wouldn't be good. But it does mean that he works through the wickedness of man to achieve his good purposes. Which is what? His people's goods and the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus. That was true for the Jews that this book was written for. God's chosen people waiting for the Messiah to come. The story of Esther reminded them that despite God seeming absent, God was still at work behind the scenes, providentially steering history to preserve and to protect his people, as we're going to see, as they awaited for the arrival of the promised king. And the same is true for us now as as those who've been grafted into the people of God by faith in Jesus. God is still at work providentially in all things for his people's good and the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus. That's Romans 8.28, right? If you know that verse, familiar verse. Of how in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Just take the weight of what Paul's saying there. In all things. In all things. That is in every moment. In, in the good times and in the hard times, in the confusing times and in the frustrating times, in the desperately sad times and in the unbelievably joyful times, in all things, God says, he is at work in those things providentially by his fatherly hand for your good, if you love him, the good being that we might be conformed more into the likeness of Jesus and brought safely home to glory where Jesus is on the throne. God is working that in your life, if you follow him, whatever is going on in your life right now, he is working to that end, providentially, by his fatherly hand. That will be completed. And so resting in God's providence means trusting that all things come to us by his fatherly hand. And if we are his, they are for our good, for those two things. Namely, to be conformed to the image of Christ and to be brought safely home to glory. From the big stuff, like whether or not we get the job that we apply for or whether The scans come back showing cancer right down to the tiny details like which train we end up catching on the way to work on Monday or who we sit next to at church on any given Sunday. We are not just being blown along by the winds of fate. No, we are being led by God's fatherly hand. And so though we might not be able to see in any given moment how God is working, much like Vashti and Xerxes and Esther and Mordecai undoubtedly couldn't in chapters 1 and 2, 
this remarkable book is going to remind us to rest in the providence of God's as we wait for the return of our good and gracious King. And on that note, let me land with this, because not only do chapters 1 and 2 remind us to rest in the providence of God, they also encourage us indirectly to rejoice in the reign of King Jesus. I mean, I won't lie, I read chapters 1 and 2 of this, and I feel a bit sick as I read about Xerxes. He was the supposed king of kings, the God-man, the, the one who was feared across the world. And he was abhorrent. He was this filthy tyrant. It's an abuse of power on so many levels. And no doubt, as the Jewish people lived through his reign, and indeed as they read about it in the years to come, it made them yearn all the more for the king that was to come, for the one who was promised to them way back, 2 Samuel 7, to David. And yet the joy of reading this story from this side of the cross is that I know that the true king of kings has come. And I read Esther 1 and 2 and it makes my heart full of joy that King Jesus does reign. And that one day he is coming back and he is going to rule over all things forever. It's made all the sweeter when, you know, on a week when our illustrious royal family is being riven by scandal and accusation. Because Jesus is the, is the very antithesis of Xerxes and every ruler like him since. Jesus is the king who is humble. He's the one who has all power and authority but is gentle and who is kind who sits enthroned above the heavens, but who lifts up the vulnerable and the marginalized and the oppressed, who reigns and rules over all, but who goes out of his way to serve others, who created and sustains and owns all things. You know that Kuiper quote, there is not one square inch of this planet over which Christ does not cry, mine, and yet who freely gives of his infinite riches for the blessing of many. He's a generous Kind king, and when you take one look at Jesus in all his glory, King Xerxes and every other ruler or leader or person in authority just fade away into nothingness. They've got nothing against him. And so let this story, as it causes you to despair at the depravity of one like Xerxes and other leaders who have abused their authority, draw your heart once again to the King of Kings in all of his beauty and in all of his loveliness the one who will one day return according to God's good providence. That is where God's fatherly hand is leading us. That's where history is headed. We'll pick this up again later tonight. Let's pray now as we finish. Gracious Father, as we, as we read the start of this book, we can't help but be shaken as we are reminded of the reality and presence of sin and wickedness in this world. But Father, we praise you for just the glimpses we're getting now and that we're going to see in full this evening of your providential care for your people of how you work in and through all situations for your people's goods and for your glory. Father, we ask, please, that you might help us in our own lives as we reflect upon this, to see as we go through our moment-by-moment, day-to-day existence, as we head back to London tomorrow, that we are not just being blown along by the winds of fate, but that you are leading us by your fatherly hands for our goods, 
Father, help us to see that in both the good times and in the hard times. And to rest in that and rest in the safe, safe in the knowledge that one day King Jesus is going to return. King Jesus, the lovely one who we worship and adore, the one who is safe and kind and compassionate and loving. We thank you for our great and merciful King. And we pray, please, that as we reflect and ponder these things more as we go about our day, that we would um, rest in them, we would wrestle with these things, and we would come back tonight ready to continue to receive from the fruit of your word. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.